Well, please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 19. Also, simply by way of reminder, uh, we do have the prayer list for the month of June available in the back. Feel free to get one on the way out. So if you're looking for things to pray for, we try to provide a monthly update of the prayer requests that we collate, um, as well as having a regular daily prayer list as we pray through the members of this church. All right, Psalm chapter 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day unto day pours out speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, in 2018, just a few years ago, Stephen Hawking, if you are familiar with him, the great physicist published what ended up being his last book before he died. He wrote this book, and the title of it was Brief Answers to Big Questions. Now, for those of you not familiar with Stephen Hawking, he was considered to be one of the most significant scientists since Darwin and Einstein. He had published several popular books that advocated the latest trends in theoretical physics and its import on how we are to view the world around us. And in his final book, he sought to answer a number of questions according uh, to him what he considered to be one of the biggest questions. And that question being this, is there a God? And Hawking's answer is, as the title suggests, brief. I quote Hawking here. He says, It is my view that the simplest explanation is that there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. I think when we hear these words, we're also reminded of the uh, atheistic British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who in the 1960s was asked one evening what he would say when he died if he were to stand before the great white throne of judgment. And like Hawking's, Russell's response was rather brief. He said, I would simply say these words, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. There is not enough evidence for God's existence. How different an answer from Hawking and Russell do we find here in Psalm 19? 
As we've already seen in several of the psalms leading up to here, in Psalm 9 and in Psalm 14, the psalmist has already declared that it is the fool who will say and utter in his heart that there is no God. But here the psalmist will speak of a double witness that attests to the glory of God above, both in nature and in Scripture. And to borrow the words of uh, the late Francis Schaeffer, we find here in Psalm 19 the startling and sober truth that God is there, and he is not silent. I'd like us to consider this psalm in three parts. First, we'll consider the matter of God's world in verses 1 to 6. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of God's word in verses 7 to 11. And then finally, let us consider man's words in verses 12 to 14. So God's world, man's, I'm sorry, God's world, God's word, and then finally, man's words. Well, the psalmist begins with this rousing attestation. He says, the heavens declare the majesty of God. The sky proclaims his craftsmanship. Notice the language, notice the verbs being used here. They declare quite literally the heavens make known the majesty and splendor of God. It is a heavenly proclamation. In other words, what the psalmist is telling here is that the created universe actually reveals something to us of the invisible God. In commenting on this psalm, John Calvin says this, he calls the heavens the divine or heavenly, I should say, preachers of Jehovah's splendor. Here they proclaim the glory and majesty of the one true God, not in hushed whispers, but in loud shouts of acclamation and praise. This is something that you will hear theologians refer to as the doctrine or teaching of general revelation. That is to say that the physical created universe reveals something of the character of the invisible God. What exactly do the heavens reveal? Well, we're told here in verse 1, they tell us of two things. They tell us of His majesty, that is to say of His eternal power, and of His deity and artistry. Right? In terms of power, we can ask the question, what being could make the worlds full of such splendor and grandeur? The answer that the heavens are proclaiming is that there is only one God. In other words, when we look around us, we should not be telling ourselves, oh, this is a wonderful, crazy act of random happenstance. Nor should we look at the worlds around us and say, well, there must be a sky God and an earth God and a tree God and a river God and so on and so forth. There is but one true God. It speaks of the deity. The Greek word there is theotes that you see repeated in Romans chapter 1. In other words, it attests to the godness of God. That he is not an impersonal force that he is not weak, that he is all-powerful. You think of Paul when he stands before the Athenians at Mars Hill. 
And he points to the statue that they have that's addressed to the unknown God. And he says, you are right to recognize that there is some deity that exists beyond what you worship. But I am here to proclaim to you that this God, the maker of heaven and earth, has in fact revealed himself. The heavens reveal this one true God. They reflect his creative power and his beauty. Notice verse 1 again, there is a proclamation of his handiwork. Uh, the, the word there is something that means something like artistry or craftsmanship. That there is actual beauty in the world and it reveals something to us of the one who has created this beautiful world. The heavens reveal the divine artistry of the eternal, invisible and all-powerful God, you look up and the truth is inescapable. This is what the psalmist himself is saying. That such a divine declaration is comprehensive in its scope. Verse 2, it is continual, ongoing, habitual in its proclamation. It, is, it happens day after day, night after night. Right? The heavens are gushing with this declaration of the existence and the perfections and attributes of the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. Again, it is not simply a, a whisper in hushed tones or isolated hints here and there. Rather, what David is saying is that this is an unending, ceaseless bullhorn. It is not only comprehensive in terms of time where he speaks of day after day and night after night gushing forth the reality and the existence of this God, but it's also comprehensive in terms of space. Look what he says next. There is no place where their voice is not heard. There's no place where a man can run and crawl under a rock or hide in a cave and claim ignorance to the very truth that the heavens are continually proclaiming. Nobody can hide or evade this wonderful truth Creation defends God's existence in such a way that transcends human culture and human language. There exists no tribe, there exists no people, there exists no nation that can claim legitimate ignorance that there is a creator. Rather, as what Paul says as he reflects on this psalm in Romans chapter 1 says, that the human race in their sin and treachery continue to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They are like a child at the beach with a beach ball. What do you do when you're at the beach? You have a beach ball and you're out in the ocean. You try to shove that beach ball down under the water. But what happens as soon as you let go? It pops back up and hits you in the face. That's the knowledge of God. Man continually in his sin tries to suppress the truth that the heavens are shouting to him. And he tries and tries, and the more he tries, the more that beach ball, the, the knowledge of the existence of God continues to pop back up and hit him in the face. In fact, this knowledge that God is the one true creator of heaven and earth is so comprehensive that Paul, in reflecting on this psalm, says that this renders all mankind without excuse. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. That which is known about God is evident 
within them, speaking of the nations, even the unbelievers, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understand how they're understand through the worlds that he has made, so that they are without excuse. The visible universe proclaims the existence and the attributes of him who is invisible at all times and in all places. Such that Bertrand Russell on the day of judgment will not be able to say not enough evidence. What we find is that David goes even further. This is not a gloomy declaration. Rather, this is a declaration of joy. Notice how he begins to compare the speech of heaven in the following verses. He compares the rising sun as a man leaving his wedding chamber on the night of his marriage. Yes. He's a happy man. Such is the sun's declaration of the existence of God. It is not only a joyous declaration that here is the God in whom all life and the fullness of life and blessing is found, but it is a declaration that is unashamed in what it heralds. We almost get the impression after watching, let's say, Carl Sagan's Cosmos series, uh, if you remember that series on PBS from the 80s, that perhaps the stars, if they tell us anything about God, are somewhat embarrassed by the fact. Because it certainly seems to be that so many unbelieving scientists and physicists look at the world and seem like they have to do everything they can to explain away what is actually obvious. The sun, the moon, the stars are not ashamed in what they proclaim. Again, notice the analogy that David gives here, that where the sun is compared as the sun sets on its course in the sky, in its rising and its setting and in its turning about. It's as if a runner, uh, it's compared to a runner running the race. You know, one thinks of, uh, uh, think in, in ancient history, you think of Philippides, uh, the, the, the great herald who runs the marathon back uh, to Athens to proclaim and shout the victory of the Athenian armies over uh, the Persian troops. That's what's being described here. That when we look out, the heavens are not ashamed to proclaim the message that there is a God and it is a message of joy. The sun, the moon, and the heavens, and the rising and setting, and the steady course of motion day after day and night after night, they loudly attest that there is one who in wisdom, power, and beauty hung the stars and the sky and set them in their fixed orbits. And it beckons us to consider not only the divine artistry, but to consider the divine artist. To consider what a marvelous God, what a majestic God it is who has made the worlds. 
And yet attending these images of cheerfulness and joy comes a sobering counterpoint that it truly renders the whole, huse, the whole host of the human race inexcusable when it comes to the knowledge of God as creator. Or on the last day, no man can honestly say to God, there is not enough evidence. How many people look at the world around them and say, well, if there is a God, he must be cruel and maniacal. According to the psalmist, that is not the message you should be getting when you look at the stars in the sky. It is a message of joy. And one of the last things Stephen Hawking wrote in his book, he says, when you look at the vast size of the universe and how insignificant and accidental human life is in it, the idea that there is a personal God seems most implausible. Here's a man who held not only a PhD, but 13 honorary degrees. These multiple degrees wherein his unbelief was reinforced and solidified. And it turns out he knew less than a desert shepherd boy who penned the words of this psalm under inspiration of the Spirit. What a contrast the words that we hear from Mr. Hawking as opposed to David when he looks up at the exact same heavens and says this, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Notice that both of these individuals are dealing with the same data. Both acknowledge the vastness of the heavens. Both affirm the seeming insignificance of man. And yet both of them come to wildly different conclusions. One sees the world and interprets it through the speech of heaven. The other sees the same world and distorts its message from his own foolish heart as he continues to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and declares that there is no God. Here the heavens proclaim God's creative power, and that proclamation is enough to render the whole human race without excuse. And yet at the same time, though we could speak of the sufficiency of nature to proclaim the existence of God, we find that creation is insufficient to provide any saving remedy. Perhaps we could put it like this. The knowledge of the universe is sufficient to condemn man in his sin. To make him realize that he has failed to give proper honor to the one true God. But the knowledge of the universe, though it is sufficient to condemn, it is insufficient to save and here we find an important transition that takes place here in this psalm, that though God has revealed himself as creator through nature, it is only through scripture that he reveals himself as the redeemer, found here in verses 7 to 11. If you notice in the first six verses, David's focus was on the splendor of the heavens, but now in verses 7 to 11, there is a shift where David now focuses on the word of God. If verses, uh, the first half of this psalm uh, emphasizes God's creative speech in nature, then here we find in verses 7 to 11, it attests to God's redemptive speech found in Scripture. This is something we could call special revelation. Though God has revealed himself as creator everywhere, it is only in the word of God and through the preaching of it that he is revealed as the redeemer of mankind. 
David here focuses his attention on the special character of God's Word as he rattles through these special qualities that characterize the Scriptures. That's what he means when he says, the law of God. That word there, law, is the Hebrew word Torah. David here is reflecting on God's saving speech as he hands his word and specially communicates it to the people of God. Here, David refers to the saving speech and character of Jehovah, who has communicated this salvation to his covenant people, a speech that marks his saving power. David says here, it is perfect, it is blameless. It brings health and wholeness. David says nothing about that in staring uh, at, at the heavens. He doesn't say mankind can look at the heavens and now can be saved by recognizing that there is a God. All man is able to do as he stares at the starry sky is recognize that there is a God. And if he fails to recognize it, he's condemned. But here, salvation is found in the Torah of Yahweh. David here is not trying to be legalistic. Notice the, the character of God's word here. David finds the message of Scripture reinvigorating. Its perfections revive and refresh the human soul, weary as it may be. The testimony of redemption that God gives in his word witnesses God's saving power that is grounded in historical fact, not in ancient myth. If the Bible is the word of God and God is perfect in all that he says and all that he does, then the word of God is trustworthy. The Bible's claims to truth are so steadfast that you can, as a wise man, build it as a wise man would build his house on a rock. The scriptures provide for us a firm foundation for life and for godliness. Unlike the esoteric wisdom of human philosophy, the Bible brings true wisdom. Right? Unlike the blind, ever-shifting bumper sticker slogans of social media and news outlets, of the latest New York Times best-selling, uh, best-selling authors, uh, scientists, and physicists, we find that this word brings a message that revives the soul that brings life back from the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this. As he compares the preaching of the gospel to the first day of creation, just as God spoke and said, let there be light and light shined in the darkness out of nothing, so has God shined the light of Jesus Christ in our hearts through the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, the New Testament sees gospel preaching as a work of new creation. It's the unbeliever who has never heard of the saving message of Christ, and he comes and he sits under the word, and all of a sudden it's as if a light turns on. And he's, why have I never believed this before? And all of a sudden he turns to Christ in faith. It is a supernatural work of God greater than the moment of creation itself, according to the Apostle Paul. Here, God's word brings life. It brings stability. It brings wisdom, as we've been considering the Proverbs as well on Sunday evenings. 
God's word speaks of the full salvation found in Christ. He comes to deliver us from our sin and our misery. It's a redemptive word that gladdens the heart as we see here. It's a redemptive word that brings true joy. Against those philosophers of today who claim there is no God, that there is no beauty, that there is no meaning, that there is no such thing as truth or goodness. Here the Bible speaks of a holy, personal God who is there and who is not silent whose handiwork is attested in the world, as the psalmist says, see for yourself, whose mercy is found in simple trust in the Son of God sent from heaven to save us from our sins and all of our sorrows. The Bible here gives the right precepts for, list, uh, for living. Uh, that language here of the, the right precepts uh, the, the, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's, the language here is that of a, of a yardstick. It's a, it's a proper measuring line by which we can evaluate truth from error, wisdom from foolishness. It is the standard by which we measure right from wrong. God's Word brings instruction. It brings delight. It brings life, even correction when we stray. It teaches us to fear the Lord and to worship the one true God with reverence and with awe. You know, the academics and philosophers and the entertainers and politicians of today may, may shout that the Bible is irrelevant to human ears, but eventually their voice will grow hoarse. The sun will set and will continue to rise. And even as the politicians of this day lay down and die, the sun will continue to run its course and proclaim with joy that there is a God who is there and is not silent. It will continue to attest from generation to generation the splendor, the divine artistry and character of the maker of heaven and earth. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of God will abide forever. The new sexual revolution will have its heyday might last a single generation, might last two or three generations, but it will not last forever because it does not have the staying power to do so. Why? Because such unbelieving thought cuts against the grain of the created order. God's word might seem irrelevant to fools, but the reality is God's word is the standard against which all modern fads and opinions are measured, and Scripture will find them irrelevant on the last day. I think that's the problem with such weak preaching that we see these days, is so many preachers want to try to make God's Word fashionable and relevant. But part of the task of preaching is to show that uh, the, the various things that are vying for our attention are themselves the things that are irrelevant. Because those are the things that will pass. Those are the things that will fade away. It is the Word of God that stands forever. That is why you find me preaching the same thing week in and week out. The reality of sin. But that there is salvation full and free given to us through faith in Christ alone. God gives us His wisdom in Scripture and it finds Stephen Hawking irrelevant 
Bertrand, Bertrand Russell obsolete, Darwin, Marx, Freud, Mao, you name it, any other system that attempts to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, any unbelieving thought that tries to exalt itself against the knowledge of God, we find that it does not stand the test of time, nor can it stand up against the declaration of heaven and earth. As day after day it attests to the wonderful works of God, the pagan can come to know true things about God and creation. But unless he hears the gospel, he will remain dead in his sins. The nations who never hear the gospel will perish in their sin because the heavens can only but condemn them. That the, the, the proclamation of heaven or from heaven is not able to save. This is why missions is so important. This is why evangelism is so important. The nations already stand condemned. This is why the New Testament speaks of this, this precious treasure that we've been given. The only hope of salvation is found in the message of Christ crucified and raised. And this is why we as the church must cling to the truthfulness of Scripture. We must not be ashamed of it, even when the media wants to make us look like the fool for embracing the folly of the cross. For Scripture here in all of its fullness equips the redeemed to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's what we see here in these repeated descriptions of uh, Scripture's saving character. It trains us for righteousness. That we might believe and do all that God has called us to believe and to do. Think of what Paul says as he writes to Timothy when he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It tells us what to do. It tells us what not to do. It tells us where we have strayed, and it tells us how to get back on the proper path. It does this that the man of God may be complete, that he might be perfect and blameless, equipped for every good work. So as we, we stand here and we, we look at these two different uh, facets of God's speech, as it were, God's world and God's word, what we find is that the two never conflict. They always complement one another. Both are necessary, but they are never in contradiction. If ever we see that there appears to be a contradiction between God's world and God's word, the fault lies on our end, either because of our own finitude, uh, our, our own smallness, our own inability to know everything, or it is a result of our own sinful misunderstanding, or worse, our own sinful suppression of the truth. But because God's word and God's world do not conflict, we need not fear the mad scientist or the atheistic philosophers no matter how much acclaim and esteem they get on the morning news and on talk shows. They might have multiple degrees behind their name, but if they fail to heed God's speech, both in creation and in redemption, God writes His assessment of them by marking them the big letter F, big circle around it. That F stands for fool. And so the Christian should be free to study the world around him without fear 
knowing that the believer knows and serves the God who has spoken. There should be an encouragement to to the young kids. If you enjoy studying the sciences, you should not fear studying the sciences. This is God's world. We hope to sing at the end of the service tonight. This is my father's world. If anybody, we are the ones who should enjoy rock climbing and, and hiking and swimming and sports and science and art more than anybody else because we understand that this is God's world and he has made it for us and he has made it that we might know him more fully. And yet at the same time, we should always treasure more than anything God's word. You see that here in verses 10 and 11. God's word is to be desired more than gold, more than wealth, more than, than honey, more than, than pleasure. Because the Bible serves as the course corrective for where we err. Uh, we still might have uh, the, the lingering remnants of unbelief uh, in our own thought processes, and the Bible helps correct it that we might see the world aright. The Bible serves, as it were, as, as a pair of prescription glasses I look at you guys right now, you guys are just a big blur. It's like looking at a Van Gogh painting. But when, when you put the glasses of Scripture on, it helps you see things properly. And so we should love God's Word more. Not to the detriment, not to the exclusion of God's world, but that there is a proper ordering to our loves. And it leads us to our final point. So we consider man's words. God has spoken in creation and in redemption. Uh, Again, to borrow another phrase from Francis Schaeffer, how then should we live? David recognizes his own limitations. He recognizes how easy it is to fall into error. Yet we see the great value of Scripture. It's saving benefits. It's given to deliver us, not just from our hidden sins, not just from our ignorance, those sins that we commit that we don't even know about, those sins that we have committed in self-deception. But we find that God's word is so powerful that he is, it has come to deliver us from those presumptuous and high-handed sins. Those sins that have been committed with eyes wide open. That's what David is saying here when he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness and from those hidden sins. Sin in all of its comprehensive nature and all of its focus Right, if, if we were to say that general revelation, that is, if God's revelation of himself as creator through creation provides and proclaims a comprehensive guilt on the human race and offers no good news, we find that Scripture provides the perfect counterpoint and complement, or provides a comprehensive acquittal to all those who turn from folly to faith. All those who trust in the glad tidings of salvation, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter how great your sins have been, there is a Savior who is greater. Creation might be sufficient to condemn, but Scripture is sufficient and mighty to save because it attests to the Savior of the world to the Son of God who came to bear the curse of sin that we might be delivered from our sin and all the consequences of the fall. We are told of the infinite, eternal, and everlasting God 
who is also merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. And as David closes out this psalm, he returns to the language we considered last week in Psalm 18. That here is the Lord who is our rock and our mighty fortress and our Redeemer. Notice that here in those first six verses, David speaks of God only in generic terms. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. Quite literally, they proclaim the glory of El. This E-L, the, the, the generic name for God in the Old Testament. But when you get to Scripture, David now appropriates the personal name of God. What you'll see in if your uh, modern translations will give uh, the covenant name of God in all uppercase letters, L-O-R-D. It's, that's transliterated for what you see in the Hebrew of Yahweh. When the Lord comes to Moses and he, and he, and he says, I tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses says, what is the name by which you are known? The Lord says, I am who I am, Yahweh. It's his covenant name. It proclaims his saving faithfulness and goodness to his people. God reveals himself as the creator to the whole human race, but it is only through Scripture that he reveals himself as Redeemer, Father, Son, and Spirit. So as we consider this psalm, I think there are just kind of three short takeaways. As this psalm provides for us a basic outlook for living. The first, and it's something that I've already hinted at before, and it's this, that God's world and God's word never contradict. If God's word and his world seem to be at odds with one another, then we have misunderstood some truth somewhere along the way. This is my Father's world. God will not tell us something through creation that's radically different from who he is in Scripture, and vice versa. Because we live in God's world, we do not need to fear those who tell us that this is not his world. They're the ones who have to distort the truth so that they could try to rest easy at night. But if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are able to lay down your head at night and sleep more soundly than the most die-in-the-wool atheist ever could. Even if we do not know how to reconcile the facts, we can simply trust God at his word because we're not going to be given an examination on you know, how the world turns on the last day. We're simply called to trust in the one who made the worlds and holds the whole world in his hand. Second thing is that since God made this world, we can delight in him with the things of this world. The Christian should love astronomy and physics and geology and hiking more so than the non-Christian. Because we know the purpose of these things. They point to the glory of Him who has made us. And finally, as we consider both God's Word and His world, we should let His Word orient and shape how we view the world around us. They should serve as our prescription lens. The world does attest to God's power and glory, but it is God's Word that will save us from the coming wrath. No man could be saved by going out into the woods at night and looking at the stars. Bare, generic monotheism cannot save. But there is a God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and he can save. And he does save. 
and he saves through the preaching and the heralding and the salvation that is found in Christ. So this evening, may we trust God and his word and worship him in this world for all that he has made for his glory and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that you give to us, and we pray that you would give us confidence in your word that we might see your world aright. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.